Hello there, welcome to Movement Scenes and Genres, or MSG10, as I keep trying to coin it, um, where we invite a guest on um, to talk us through a movement, a scene, or a genre in music um, with 10 songs. I either define it for them, or just ones they, they like, or just ones we can talk about. Um, my guest today is author of the, the, the fabulous um, Girls to the Front, The True Story of the Riot Girl Revolution. It's Sarah Marcus. Hello, Sarah. Hello, nice to see you. Nice to see you. Um, you did actually come on one of our previous pods, um, the, the Temporary Fandoms ones, um, which was Slater Kinney. I'm still trying to get the pronunciation right in my head. Um, so it's fantastic to have you back. Um, if you're listening and you want to, to hear um, what Sarah has to say with other guests on Slater Kinney, find it on our website, which is in frequency.co.uk. Um, where you can stream this with all the songs legally because that's powered by our Mixcloud, which is um, uh, mixcloud.com slash tempfans. If you're listening to this on a normal pod player, um, you won't hear the songs, but we'll put a link to a Spotify playlist and put what we can on there. I'm not sure everything we're covering today will be on there. Um, okay, so... Sarah, you you've probably been asked this a million times. You you wrote the book, uh, uh, or the seminal book on on the Riot Girl Revolution. Um, but I'm interested about how you got into this. Was this something you came into at the time, or I mean, I, I read in your book that when when it was all kicking off, you were at school uh, performing in a um, oh what in England we'd say a panto, but what was it? <laughs> oh, it was a just summer theater camp. We were doing the Wiz, and I was the good witch. Oh, the Wiz! The Wiz is that what? That's the one that the movie was Michael Jackson, Diana yes. Ross, right? Yes, indeed. Yes, and, um, yes. <laughs> and the the Jewish Community Center of Greater Washington, in its infinite wisdom, decided that it would make sense for the uh, for the Jewish summer theater camp kids to put on the Wiz, and we did. I really hope there's some video, but um, I also there hope for your sake there isn't. Somewhere, but I'm sure it's all untransferred VHS, completely um, inaccessible. Thank God. <laughs> so you say. Um, okay, so um, so there was this thing was happening, and we'll talk about how it actually started a, bit, a little bit later on. But how did you find yourself either getting involved or wanting to get involved with this basically underground zine feminist movement that was? spreading. Right. I mean, I'd been uh, interested in feminism at that point uh, for some years, thanks in part to my mom, thanks in part to some folks I met at the aforementioned Jewish summer theater camp. Um, and, you know, and thanks just to my um, my inveterate haunting of my high school's uh, library. Um, so I'd been interested in feminism and wanted to be getting things going at my own high school. And right around that time, an article came out in Newsweek, which is a very, very mainstream, mass market, flimsy weekly news magazine. I don't even know if it exists anymore in that form. But, you know, in the 90s, this was like the way 
that you would, you know, get some sort of like more in-depth news reporting than you would get from your daily newspaper. Um, honestly, I don't know why I never clicked on this before, but one of my first temp jobs upon graduating from college, and thus one of my first media jobs, was at Newsweek.com, copy-pasting content from the magazine server into the server for the new website. <laughs> and I literally just sat there all day going, control C, command tab, <laughs> control V, um, all day long. Because that, that was how that was how you migrated content <laughs> from the magazine t- uh, content server into the um, into so the it was CNS. Fate. It was fate, right? It fate was, brought it you was back fate. to Newsweek. Newsweek. You know, I never actually, I, I did actually write a record review for Newsweek.com. You know, I, I like this temp job that I had for two weeks. I sort of capitalized on it to get a clip. Um, and I've never thought about the connection between that and the fact that were it not for Newsweek's Highly controversial, by the way, article about Riot Girl, which they published mm-hmm. in the fall of 1992. Had it not been for that article, who knows when I would have heard about it. I'm sure eventually I would have because – so I read the Newsweek article. The Newsweek article was, as I mentioned, highly controversial because by the point in time when the um, when the journalist was going looking for people to talk to her for an article about Newsweek – I mean, about Riot Girl for Newsweek, most people involved in Riot Girl had decided to stop talking to the media because – the constant requests for comment were just becoming overwhelming. These were teenagers. Mm-hmm. They didn't have media training. They weren't accustomed to, you know, they didn't have like tons of time every day to grant interviews. And they had already seen a few articles come out that were really demeaning. And they were just like, you know what? If people are just coming to talk to us to, you know, run a hit job, we don't need to put our time and energy into that. We're not going to do it. You know, we're doing perfectly fine at spreading the word through our underground DIY networks. And we don't actually need the, we don't need this wide exposure. That's not what we're doing. We're not, we're not building like a huge mass movement. We're like building a scene for ourselves and the people who are in the scenes that we're already somewhat a part of. Um, So this was, you know, what quickly became kind of known as the media blackout. And in the midst of this media blackout, one riot girl from uh, Minneapolis decided to talk to the reporter. And so she was the the main one who was interviewed a lot in the article. And although... The voice of riot girl. Yeah, and although this decision made her, um, you know, kind of a, a demonized figure among like the insiders, for me as an outsider, that was... That was what made it possible for that article to come out. I read the article and I thought, oh my gosh, there are other people like me. And it hadn't occurred to me that my love of music and performance and my interest in feminism like had anything to do with each other. And suddenly here's this notion that there's a scene out there where it does. It's very exciting to me. Um, And I set about trying to find it. But, um, you know, there's no internet. It's 1992. I mean, there's a little internet, but there's not the kind of internet that's going to allow me to find Riot Girl. (laughs) Um, So it took about, I don't know, maybe only six months at that point before this this radical feminist newsletter called Off Our Backs, all lowercase letters that had been publishing in D.C. since the 70s. They ran an interview with some D.C. area Riot Girls, and that article included a contact address. So I sent a letter. And I waited, again, many, many, many months, but eventually I got some flyers back in the mail. Um, and one of them said, all girls interested in revolution should write things on your hands so we can find each other. And one of them said, we meet every 
I want to say Sunday afternoon at the Positive Force House in Arlington, Virginia. It's by the Court Square stop on the Metro. Yeah. And I was like, oh. I think this, I this thing about writing things on your hands is, is, is this sort of really fascinating, but also really sweet looking back historically. Yeah. You know, so it's like a little secret code. Right. Um, well, it's already common it's, at that point, right, for people to write things on the sides of your Converse sneakers or write things on your notebooks yeah. or whatever. I'm like, or, you know, put a, put a sign on the inside of your locker, but the idea to, to ground it in the body itself was a really interesting move. And it had, um, precedence in like feminist art traditions of like, of body art and, um, the, it was, I can't remember who, maybe Anna Mendieta, like there were def, I, I gave a whole paper about this many years ago. And of course the details are all flying out of my brain right now, but there's a, <laughs> a, a really rich feminist history of, of body art and of art that involves, um, emblazoning simple symbols or language, you know? So I, I guess if you sort of take on the one hand, like the, the art involving the body of somebody like Carolee Schneeman or Yoko Ono. And then on the other hand, um, the like really language forward feminist art by people like Jenny Holzer and Barbara Kruger, the gesture of writing something on your hand kind of brings together these two traditions in feminist art. And when I'm saying this, I'm saying this because like the people who were coming up with this, like were studying feminist art. You know, and you know, Kathleen Hanna was along with her friend Tamiri Carlin, who's now an art professor like running a feminist art gallery in, in Olympia, Washington. So like it, without coming down from on high and like giving a sort of didactic feminist art history lesson to these <laughs> teenage girls in the suburbs, we were being like drafted into making it ourselves in a way that like felt really exciting to us. And so, yeah, I wrote things on my hands. Nobody ever came and talked to me because of it, but I sure did it. <laughs> it was like putting um, on battle paint for myself every day, like suiting yeah. up. Here I go. Feminist revolutionary. And interesting. So you mentioned it, the whole art thing. It's almost like everybody involved was part of the same art piece, I guess. Yeah. If that doesn't sound a bit too pretentious. If it does, then I'm the worst offender of all. <laughs> um, okay, this is probably as good time as any to move on, to get into uh, your first choice. Oh, yeah. Your first choice today. This the songs, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> your first choice, um, which was, which is one I did, I did not know. Uh -huh. uh, not which on is Spotify. A Huggy Bear Shaved Pussy Poetry. Um who are Huggy Bear and, and why this song? Huggy Bear were the main British riot girl band of the first wave. There were, you know, there were plenty of uh, British feminist riot girl affiliated musicians kind of afterward. But in the moment when, um, when Bikini Kill comes over to the UK to tour, um, they tour with Huggy Bear. And when Bikini Kill makes a split LP for Kill Rock Stars, one side is Bikini Kill, the other side is Huggy Bear. They were the flagship um, British riot girl band. And as I mentioned, their music isn't on Spotify. They were always really elusive, gnomic. They didn't give a whole lot of interviews. Um, they didn't uh, tour outside the country very often. They only came to the US once. Um, and um, alone of all the bands that I wrote about for my book, this was the, this was the band that was the hardest to get in touch with. And in fact, only one member of the band, um, the 
the guitarist, John, was the only person who would speak to me. And the, the singers, the women in the band, just like, they were like, we do not, we're not doing interviews. We're not doing that. So they remain sort of like the most mysterious, like <laughs> the elusive full <laughs> uh, piece of that history in a certain way. But they're also, they were just such a, and their music is not Spotify, but you can hear it and see some performances on YouTube if you search on them. Um, just such incredible musicians, such brilliant and um electrifying songwriting. And so I showed, I chose shaved pussy poetry as, as the song, although you know, there's many songs I could have chosen. It's just the, the, the two records, I guess, two and a half counting the split LP with bikini kill. These songs are just like full of, of bangers. Like it's so good. Um, shaved pussy poetry is this amazing song because it's sung. It's, it's sung in the voice of well, I mean, there's a there's a woman who's singing it and she's singing to someone else. And she said, I wasn't seeking clues. I didn't know what to do with the letter that you sent to the to the place where I go. She's writing about like somebody has sent her some kind of a revolutionary missive that's making everything start to seem possible to her. And the chorus goes, yeah, yeah, the letter you sent me. Yeah, yeah, the letter you sent me. I kept it in my bag. Do, do, do. I won't let the authorities <laughs> have it. No, no, no. So it's this mix of sort of like... Uh, Drony singing with uh, kind of sing-song chanting. Um, but I, I see it as a sort of like theme setter for the whole thing of Riot Girl, which is this idea of like radical feminist ideas being passed person to person in a way that sometimes feels sort of like secret or underground. And like, and you just get the idea in your mind explodes, you know, and it reminds me of how the first time I heard Bikini Kill, it was this girl at my school who like, dubbed a tape for me and kind of passed it to me between classes. Right. And then I got home and I listened to it and it's just like this handwritten artifacty, like one of a kind object that I'm like, has been put into my hand and it's changing my life as soon as I press play. So you mentioned, you mentioned Bikini Kilver and I had a proper moment um, this weekend when I, th- I was convinced I didn't remember a single Bikini Kill track in my life. And then I put on the singles collection. I went, oh, yeah, yeah, I know this one. <laughs> oh, yeah, I know this mm-hmm. one. Oh, this is the theme tune to the TV show Penis, um, which is for P-I-P-E-N. Pen 15, it's Penis, which my wife and I watched all the time. And it was like, oh, yeah, 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 of course this is this, of course. Why were why was Kathleen Hanna and Bikini Kill? Why were they so important? With not not the not just the idea of the music, but also the idea of spreading the message from town to town as they sort of toured. Why were they so integral? Uh, Bikini Kill had a vision. They had a mission. I mean, this nothing that happened with Bikini Kill was an accident. Kathleen Hanna had been in other bands and she um and she had also tried to uh get her feminist ideas across through writing and through spoken word and um and through putting things on at the the gallery that she was helping run and she came to the conclusion that what she really needed to do was to start an explicitly feminist band with other explicitly feminist musicians and write songs about feminism. Um, and so she reached out to Toby Vale, who was 
an amazing zine writer and drummer and, you know, well-known feminist punk around town in Olympia and, you know, asked her to start a band. And then Toby had an idea for a bassist. And then they auditioned some, some guitarists and wound up with Billy. And I mean, the, the band had a, a mission and a vision from the beginning and it pursued that vision, um, magnificently and so successfully they wrote songs about feminism not all of which were like extremely sort of like didactic although the one that we're about to hear um is in fact and i I put it up front for a reason because sometimes it's actually really powerful to just hear somebody um i mean this is this is punk right like just put it out there in a very simple, straightforward form. You don't have to pretty it up with a bunch of meta, you know, metaphors are great, but sometimes it's good enough to say, um, start a band or say what you want or girl, you have power or whatever. And that's what Bikini Kill did. Um, okay. And, and, and so, and they, they, they basically toured a lot and there's stories. Yeah. Quite in the early parts of your book, about people would come along and and, and scream, basically, "Riot Girl!" and, and "We Love You!" and throw a, one story about someone throwing a rose onto the stage mm-hmm. that Kathy Han has sort of plucked up, and that idea of that you were talking about earlier on of finding sort of like-minded people. I guess mm-hmm. um, this is where they all finally sort of got together um, with this sort of traveling man. So. Let's go into the track. We'll, we'll, we can talk more about Bikini Hill later. Um, which track is this? Oh, this is Double Daria, which is the it's the beginning of their um, of what was it, well, it was the first song on the tape that Becca made for me. At which, by that point, I believe was the 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 first two albums put together. The first two albums being a ten inch uh, an EP and the um, the half LP that was split with Huggy Bear. And by the time I was listening to this, those two had sort of been um been released together i suppose um and that's what you can find now on all your you know favorite exploitative streaming sites but so the this this opening song is called double daria it opens with um like awkward feedback and you can hear kathleen say oh is that supposed to be doing that and there's this moment of like amateur uh or you know beginnering learning in public kind of performance and then the song begins and it just it's a it's a, a freight train running you over or inviting you to get on. So with a lot of movements, um, and this is a, a definition of a movement, uh, really, um, there's often a strong political affiliation. Um, usually, historically, it's it's on the left side of the political spectrum. You don't often get. Well, you don't often get right-wing political movements that you want to listen to. <laughs> um, although, I mean, classic. I've, I've got. I've, I. There's a lot of classic country that I love, even when its politics aren't um, aren't 100 in line with my own. Yeah. No. One. Oh, 100. Um, but in terms of this, there was in the early days. Not only were they they touring and, and getting a lot of young uh, feminists very excited that there was a sense of belonging, a sense of power, and a sense of a, a, a joint movement. But there was also a big political awareness and, and fundraisers for things like offer pro-choice and Planned Parenthood stuff. Mm-hmm. Was this a nat- was this a natural fit, a conscious decision? Or did, it, did it just happen? Well, 
Well, I mean, a couple things go into that. One of them is, and, and this is something that I get into in my book, Girls to the Front, is that I think that part of why Riot Girl took off as much as it did um, when it did was because the politics of the moment included lots of, there's a, the anti-feminist backlash that had begun actually um, by the late 70s and definitely was in full swing by the early 80s is still going on in the early 90s, is, as can be seen in such um, uh, news events as the the Clarence, the Anita Hill hearings um, in connection with Clarence Thomas's nomination to the Supreme Court. And he is, of course, confirmed to the Supreme Court, despite the fact that um, his his former coworker shows up in front of a congressional committee to detail the the sexual harassment that he had subjected her to while they worked together. Um, so we we have the a, a growing understanding of the role of sexual harassment in the lives of women, both at work and at school. A, a big study comes out around this time explaining the degree of you know, sexual harassment and sexual assault that even girls in high school are facing. And at the same time, the continual um, kind of chipping away at, uh, at abortion access in the U.S., which of course has you know, gotten to a much worse place now, but in 1992, 93, the sort of leading edge of those attacks often focused on um, parental consent laws and on um, on limiting uh, access to abortion for women under the age of eighteen or sometimes under the age of, of sixteen. And and the the Supreme Court had had explicitly given the green light to those kinds of restrictions on on young women's reproductive health access so these issues are are really hot button issues of the day and at the same time you've got riot girl coming into a punk culture where especially in DC benefit concerts were just the norm um the punk scene in DC in large part because it's located in the nation's capital. So anytime there's a national protest against anything, it's a local protest for you. You can just go downtown and show up. Um, for years, by the point that Riot Girl got started, for years there had been a punk activist group called um, Positive Force, which would hold meetings and put on benefit shows. So this was a real routine thing that people did and whatever, you know, often you would choose an organization to send the, the proceeds to that was linked in some way to the bands that were playing. Okay. Okay. Good, good, good. Right. So we're going to move on to the next choice. Mm -hmm. And I mean, if Kathleen Hanna is one of the, the most famous names we think of when we, when we think of Riot Girl, Corinne Tucker is one of the others, mm -hmm. right? I mean, you can always pluck a couple of names out of every scene and go that one, that one, yeah. that one, they're, they're the ones. Um, who is Corinne? And people now might know her for Slater right. Kinney. That's Slater Kinney, English listeners. Right. Slater, and also, by the way, Corin, Corin Tucker. Ah, there am I. There am I correcting the pronunciation of English people and being all sanctimonious on my high horse, and I've got it wrong. Corin Tucker mm -hmm. of Slater Kinney. Mm -hmm. um, but this was we're not we're not 
doing Slater Kenny. We're not though. doing Slater Kenny because they are they are they're like immediate post Riot Girl basically. And I initially had had an early Slater Kenny song on the list, which you know when you told me that twelve was too many and that you really did mean it about ten, I took it off because you know people can go find Slater Kenny. They've heard of that band before. Um, people haven't really listened to Heaven's Betsy. Heaven's Betsy was Corin Tucker's band um, before Slater Kenny. It was her first band. Um, and it was her and her friend, Tracy Sawyer, they were high school friends and they got this band going, um, when Corin was doing her first year of college and got to Evergreen and saw all these other amazing women, um, playing music and decided to, you know, to really have, have a go as, as a band with her friend, Tracy. Um, and then as happens in Olympia, um, if you go around enough telling people that you have a band, somebody's going to offer you a show and that's what happened. <laughs> um so, so their bluff was basically called well, but then and they and they rose to it you know same as with similar thing happened um with bratmobile like the the idea and the the impulse to contribute to this incredibly participatory scene is is the first step to actually making the thing you tell people you're going to do it. And then you have people who they're not, people aren't like, put your money where your mouth is. They're like, how wonderful. I would like to hear it. And I don't know. I mean, this, this is sort of what I came up in and it's still sometimes hard for me to make something when I can't at least imagine that there is a group of supportive people out there going, how wonderful I would like to hear it. <laughs> See that that sounds like the opposite to a lot of English. We're like, oh, you're in a band, are you? Uh huh. Do I have to come and listen to oh. them? Fine. Mm, mm, mm. <laughs> um, okay, so so the track you've chosen is so I've chosen two Heaven's to Betsy tracks, and the first one is from uh, the first their first vinyl release, which was a uh, a seven inch, and it also happens to be one of the first two Riot Girl records I ever bought myself. Um, the other one was Huggy Bear's 10 inch taking the rough with the smooch from which Jave pussy poetry is drawn. These were the two records that I bought when I went to the, the beehive collective, which was a sort of anarchist, um, ish, uh, collective space that also had a record store on the first floor. And that was where I went to, to buy my first punk records. The heavens, how, how much, how much, oh, were the, how I'm much pretty were sure your the first heavens to Betsy, Seven inch would have been three ninety nine, and the Huggy Bear ten inch probably was like seven ninety nine or eight ninety nine. Um, I okay, yeah, just so the these have these this early Heavens to Betsy song. It's very very stripped down. It's just bass and drums and singing. Um, and I was at the time trying to learn how to play drums, and my friend who was a drummer had lent me some drumsticks and had suggested that I just pile pillows around me in a loose configuration to a drum set and practice playing along with records. And so when I heard have this Heaven's to Betsy, me and her, I was like, oh, this is so this is such a stripped down minimal song. I can hear what the drums are doing really easily as this as this absolute beginner who's learned, you know, maybe two rock beats in my whole life. And so I would just sit there and practice that and practice playing along. And I could also um, pick out the bass part. It was it was just, and so, but I don't want to be sounding like I'm, you know, criticizing the song for being like simple as if that's a bad thing. Really, it's, it's a beautiful and a very kind of like emotionally complex song about like female friendship. Um, and it's, and it's also kind of a great pop song using the absolute minimum of materials. <laughs> 
so yeah, so that was we, we played two back to back, and you were talking about the first one being very simple, but they they're not the same. No, uh, and but they're both. I mean, is Riot Girl a genre? Is Riot Girl a movement? Right. Is Riot Girl just a poster? What? Right. I mean, Riot Girl wasn't just so. It was not just music, first of all, because it was like an overall movement that involved zines and meetings and conventions and um, sometimes visual art, definitely a a concerted collective project of of elaborating some kind of of feminist theory that was going to be relevant to to young women. Um, And music was one element of it, but not all that music sounds the same, as you can tell, even in just listening to those two Heavens to Betsy songs where one is like incredibly stripped down and basically a pop song. And then terrorist is like this really more what you, what is the like stereotypical riot girl song. Like the, the electric guitar is very loud. There's a lot of distortion. There's kind of some screaming involved, but like not all the songs um, sound like that. And the, I think that the impulse to use some form of punk to get a feminist idea across is the is the only hallmark of riot girl music and the idea that it's like one genre or that everything sounds the same or that everything that sounds in a particular sounds at all like one heavens to Bezzy song is riot girl is just not true but is is it not an argument that um, i mean for any diy scene guitars are these guitars are you the things people are going to pick up and particularly if it's a, a rebellious scene uh, electric guitars and drums rather than, oh, I can play the clarinet. Can I join? Mm. Clarinet just doesn't cut it, you know? So those were that was Heaven to Betsy. We're now going to very quickly return to two tracks by, well, Bikini Kill yes. again. Um, could you very quickly introduce the two tracks and then we'll, we'll bang them yeah. straight out? These are our later singles from stuff that came out after their um... – after their full length Pussy Whipped came out, they just put out a couple of just searing um, pop punk songs on on seven inches. And one of the things that I want to point out to your listeners about Demi Rep is that it was um, recorded and produced by Joan Jett. Um, and the opening like hand clapping game is being done by Kathleen Hanna and Joan Jett. And you hear them also like talking to each other when the song is over. I was listening to that as I walked in the house when I went to the shops earlier on. It was raining, and I was like, "Oh, this is yeah, okay, yeah, clap, clap." I like, "Oh, this." I ne- I never skipped. I never did that sort of clapping, skipping uh, uh-huh. thing. Of so, but it rang it, to me. It sounded very American and very high school. Yes. All right. So, um, if listeners are thinking why are they sort of banging two songs together, it's because Sarah has been generous enough to give us our time, um, and she's very busy and has to teach in about fifteen minutes or less. All right. Two more tracks from Bikini Kill. Now. Okay, so that was a couple of Bikini Kills. Um, I just want to touch upon something. Um, We've got this big, strong feminist music movement um, in the early 90s, mainly in the Pacific Northwest. There were other music movements possibly seen as as more famous coming out of the Pacific Northwest, being, for example, grunge with your Nirvanas and whatnot. And also the music the music scene at the time was very male-dominated. You had bands, you did you had bands like L7 become famous because of certain incidents 
at Reading Festival 1992. Um, I mean, I think they were famous already by then. Oh, they were, but in terms of like, in terms of um, notoriety, mm. particularly in the UK, okay. um, I, I mainly remember that day for the for the mud. It was very very bad mm. weather. Um, but how was this received? Not only by the music press, but also by the rest of the music industry, particularly in a in a very male dominated one, um, which being alternative rock and alternative. So a couple things to say there. I mean, one is that. Um, Bikini Kill got mixed reviews. Some reviewers recognized them as being amazing and some did not. I was recently reminded um, that, that Chuck Eddy um, reviewed Bikini Kill for Rolling Stone and was very unflattering about them and, you know, goes in the museum of like takes that have not held up that have not aged well you know everybody <laughs> you can't always be right about everything you hear um and so he he got that one wrong um and some of the other i mean i don't even think that Heaven, heavens to betsy and, and Bramobile were putting out albums on very small labels so they were getting reviewed mostly in like punk magazines in my memory um which is imperfect from the time is that a lot of them weren't really getting their due in those um, reviews, but weren't really even getting mainstream attention. Bikini Kill was getting mainstream attention. Their their sound was, um, their sound and their polish were such that you know people wanted to talk about them. Um, as far as the relationship with grunge, I mean, there there's a way in which I think that these bands might have gotten less attention if there hadn't been grunge around, because suddenly you have um, music journalists like going out to Seattle to sniff around and find out what's going on, and possibly even you know go travel to Olympia to say, oh, what's this place that was so formative on Kurt Cobain, and then you start to hear about how, in fact, you know Kathleen Hanna's uh, graffiti like gave smells like teen spirit the title and so then bikini killer are, are almost by by association maybe get more attention than not than they deserve but at all but more than otherwise might have come to them given the the gender dynamics of um of rock and roll at the time do you think that um, particularly on the gender front, I mean, there, there weren't many. The aforementioned L7 maybe from LA, but a lot of these bands were from the Pacific Northwest, and it was alternative music, sort of in tandem with 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 a, a famous grunge scene. Do you think that if there'd been this movement elsewhere, and it wasn't this kind of thing, that that it would have been easier to suppress? Mm. Maybe I don't know. That's a tough counterfactual because I want to say that like. I would almost want to to challenge the whole assumption there and say, in fact, that it was the the like generative energy pervading at least Olympia and Seattle that made both Riot Girl and Grunge possible. Like you can't like these things don't come out of absolutely nowhere. There's all there's usually yeah. going to be either a really great radio station or a college with a great music scene or um, you know, in, in the case of, of DC, like, uh, the local, like political access that gave rise to this like political punk scene. Um, I, I mean, I don't think it would have been suppressed anywhere. It's more about, I mean, what interests me more is just like, what are the factors that 
have to be present to spark off something so magnificent in a particular place and time. Okay. And so we're going to move on to two tracks from you've mentioned. Oh, yeah. Um, I should mention, I should talk about Bratmobile in, in the in the context of this regional thing, because Bratmobile were a bi-coastal band. Two of their members were right. from, um, well, one of their members was from the Northwest and went to college in the Northwest. One of their members was from DC and went to college in the Northwest. And one of their members just lived in DC. They were a bi-coastal band. Um, this is why they didn't tour as often as some of the bands who all lived in the same place. Um, but um, that, that connection, that cross-country connection between DC and Olympia was really, really central to Riot Girl. It's important to not just think of it as like all Pacific Northwest. The DC is a major ingredient here. So Bratmobile were a trio, a power trio. And, um, and the two songs that I've got queued up for you are, again, kind of different stylistically, um, quite different stylistically, similar to the, the two Heavens to Betsy songs that I gave you earlier. And together, they think they give you a pretty decent sense of what Bratmobile is about. So that last uh, Bratmobile song, Polaroid Baby, and the next song that I've queued up, which is Heavens to Betsy's White Girl, I've chosen put together um, as a way of, of uh, addressing something that often comes up in discussions of Riot Girl, which is, you know, Riot Girl's feminism was not as multiracial intersectional in, um, in appearance as we've come to sort of demand um, feminist uh, formations to be these days. And people will often, you know, raise this as a critique. Oh, Riot Girl was white, you know, it was white feminism. It was really single issue. The fact is, although, you know, the punk scenes that Riot Girl grew out of were in many cases, majority white and the makeups of the sort of Riot Girl cadres in, in many cases sort of tracked onto that. At the, at the same time, there was an incredibly, um, an incredibly earnest attempt to reckon with what we now call intersectionality and to recognize the importance of like race and class and ability as factors that inter interact with gender to produce different levels of like privilege, power, and so forth. So you heard this in a kind of, um, you know, poetic sing-songy way in the Bratmobile song. And, you know, I just want to say Molly of, uh, of Bratmobile was really hooked into hip hop. She did a lot of reading about like black politics and that this comes out, um, in the, in Polaroid baby with its reference to the LA riots and its quotation of like an early, um, hip hop single, um, with, we don't need no water, let the motherfucker burn and heavens to Betsy's white girl in a very different um, mode is trying incredibly earnestly to to think through the um, to think through how race in particular um, comes to bear on the articulations of feminism that are happening within Riot Girl. And none of this is to say that they got it exactly right, but just to say that like people were giving it a shot as best they knew how at the time. Yeah, I, I think that's it. It's that whole thing of white college white college kids. And it's the same with a lot of music scenes and, and, and male or female. It, there is sometimes there is this extra effort of no, 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 no. We do understand. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and whether it comes across well or over earnest um, can, can be a totally different thing. Um, but yeah, um, let's go into Heavens to Betsy, White Girl. <laughs> um, 
so obviously a lot of a lot of this uh, a lot of we've listened a lot a lot of what we've listened to uh, was back in the nineties, but that doesn't mean the story ended i mean um we've already mentioned and we haven't chosen a track of, of slater kinney who is still going strong um to this day released an album last year but our final track is well even, even more flag bearing of the future right um what have we got um so this last this last song is a little over a year old at this point it's called racist sexist boy it's by a band called the linda lindas um which consists of teenage and pre-teenage girls um, from LA. And, um, you know, speaking of intersectionality and addressing race and gender and racism and sexism together, the Linda Lindas, racist, sexist boy, they've got it all, they have it going on. And it's just... You know, it's just a wonderful song, you know, with the doominess and sludginess and the, the screaming and the, um, the very sort of like personal as political, like um, furor of the lyrics. Um, I've just I'm I've, there's a wonderful video of them performing it live at the Los Angeles Public Library that anybody can uh, can access. And I think it's it's uh, it came out right? Like while the pandemic was going on and and there was just so much suppressed rage at like uh, at the injustice of everything. And I think that the Linda Linda's just did a magnificent job of, uh, of channeling that for all of us while we were still under uh, all under some form of lockdown. Okay. Well, that, that was fantastic. Um, Thank you ever so much to Sarah Marcus for taking the time uh, in your incredibly busy day uh, to spend with us um, going through a history of of Riot Girl. Um, your book, uh, Girls to the Front, The True Story of the Riot Girl Revolution, is um, still in print, so order it from your local bookstore. Um, it really is, really is, really is a good read. Um, Sarah, thank you ever so much. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, it's been great to and have you. And for enduring thank my you scheduling much. difficulties. <laughs> uh, it, it, the pleasure is absolutely ours. And um, as I've said, if you want to hear more um, from us, um, that's just go to infrequency.co.uk. And um, yeah. Great. Bye. <laughs>